everyone. Welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Zonan Canada is a podcast about the many relationships between anime and Canadian media. And every year we have a holiday special where me and a few guests recount our favorite pieces of media that, uh, you know, we've encountered over the last year and want to share with everyone. And uh 2020 is going to be no exception, despite the fact that this has been a garbage year for everyone in every way. This time around, uh, I have reached the olive branch out towards uh, Zonan Canada's fiercest rivals over at the Anime Roundtable podcast. And uh, three of their hosts have joined me today to... Uh, take part in this holiday discussion. Mike, can you uh, can you go first? Hi, I'm Mike Nicholas. I'm the creator and main host of the Anime Roundtable, which has been in existence in some form since 2006, but it took a hiatus, an almost decade-long hiatus in 2010, and then returned almost three years ago in 2018. And really, it's just a current events show. We talk about various headlines in terms of anime and East Asian pop culture. For myself, been a fan since, geez, uh, I, I would say hard, uh, really went into it in the 90s when I was in school. And, but it, it couldn't even, it could even date well before that when CFMT, uh, Omni Television here in the early 80s aired things like Star Blazers and the Force 5 series. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where, that's where we can really, uh, I can really start to date back when I got my first real exposures. But Robotech kind of solidified things a little bit more. And then in the 90s, discovered it again. That's, uh, the short story, I guess. We also have James. James, can you, uh, introduce yourself? Hey there, I'm uh, James Austin, and it's like I've been into anime probably not as long as you might, but uh, since the turn of the century, and it's been a fun ride, and I'm also uh, a co-host on uh, the Anime Roundtable, and I've been there since uh, the very beginning, over a decade when Mike just happened to wrangle me into a classroom, and I've never left ever since. And finally, we welcome back to the show someone who has not been on since the very first episode. <laughs> this horse, Kevin Eng. Kevin, can you just introduce yourself for the folks who were not here for episode one? And please don't go back and listen to episode one because it's terrible. He's <laughs> <laughs> still online, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hello, I am Kevin, and I am the youngin' of the anime roundtable. I've been a fan since probably the late 90s when Pokemon debuted on YTV. And I guess I still consider myself a Pokemon fan, but I don't really watch that show anymore. I've been part of fandom for, yeah, it's, what, 20-odd, 20 years or so now. Uh, I was a Bionics kid. Didn't really watch uh, Inuyasha until the Bionics block debuted, so it was more so Witch Hunter Robin that hooked me into anime as a medium. Uh, nowadays, I predominantly read manga. I don't watch anime nearly as often as I used to, but I do still consider myself a fan of it. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. We're going to jump into our uh, normal holiday media uh, extravaganza soon enough. Um, first, we just I just wanted to bring up a couple things. So 2020 has been, as I said, shitty in many ways. Uh, we have seen a number of shocking deaths take place. Uh, through the course of the year. And very recently, one of the more shocking ones has come up. And you guys have talked about this on your show uh, a bit because uh, you, you've had a couple episodes a little more recently than me. But Kirby Morrow 
very tragically passed away in late November at the age of 47, which honestly kind of came out of nowhere for most people and uh, kind of kind of made big shockwaves just in Canadian media news in general. Uh, Kirby Morrow, of course, was the voice of Troa in Gundam Wing, Moroku in uh, in Inuyasha, Vaughn in Escaflone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was a he was a Goku. <sighs> God, this was, this was really difficult to process. I know that he had actually just recently reprised the role of Miroku in, uh, in Yashihime. I haven't checked out that dub, but, uh, I've heard from people that he sounded very different. And I know there's, I'm, I've been getting a f- little bit of mixed information about the actual cause of his death. I've been read some recent articles. Apparently there were some struggles with, with alcohol. I think this mm. possible this could all be related. Uh, there may have been larger health things going on at that time. I'm not gonna, uh, say for certain because I don't think it's it's been fully confirmed. But yeah, it's definitely a, a a big shock for most people. Despite that, did you guys have anything to comment on about that? We mention how much over the last two decades English voices have gained their following, and we we'll often make the joke for better or worse. We won't go to that part of it, but they've helped carry the next gener the more recent generations of fans, whereas. In my when I was getting into it, I gravitated towards the Japanese voices, but there is a clear, clear gravitation towards English voices these days. Kirby would have been amongst that. Oh, definitely. Like if you went to conventions back in the late nineties, early two thousands, or no, specifically early two thousands, because Gundam Wing debuted in two thousand in in the United States and Canada. Uh, like anyone who was a voice actor on Gundam Wing, especially those principal characters, they were like rock stars. At mm-hmm. conventions, just the excitement they generated was was crazy. I think it was probably unprecedented at that time. It, it's more common to see um, voice actors, you know, draw that kind of energy these days and over the over the past decade, but mm-hmm. or the past couple of decades. But Gundam Wing really set the bar for that, and I I, I know that Kirby Morrow was always like really surprised and humbled by that. And yeah, it's just. Uh, it's definitely sad to think back on that. Again, I know his brother has launched an attempt to create a Kirby Morrow Memorial Scholarship Fund. Um, I'll include a link in the the show notes for this. Um, but they're they're raising money to create a, a scholarship in Alberta. Uh, and it's in a, in a GoFundMe. At the at the time, they're at about twenty five percent of their goal. If uh, if you want to make a donation in his memory. But uh, yeah, I know we we can't we can't eulogize everyone on this show because you know we've we, we've seen a lot of unfortunate deaths over the years and that's obviously going to keep happening. But I I thought it would be I'd be much remiss if I did not mention this this very shocking news. That said, uh, there's at the time that we're recording this, uh, some other apparently some other major uh, news has come out. I've, I've heard a few rumblings about it. Uh, yeah, no, yesterday it was announced that. Funimation, uh, in a move that will surprise nobody who's been following this to any degree whatsoever, is going to be purchasing Crunchyroll. Oh. Uh, there have been rumblings about this for quite a few months. I think even if this didn't happen, uh, the writing was kind of on the wall that the current, with the current streaming services wasn't going to be sustainable. Something was going to give eventually. And surprise, surprise, Sony, the company who once a monopoly on anime is one step closer to that. Although I would debate that what they have now is not quite a monopoly, but that seems to be the assessment that most people are kind of jumping to on this. 
They got the majority. If you look at it realistically, they're not even close to a monopoly. And even if you do regulatory things, I don't think the niche of anime, they, it's just like it wouldn't matter to them and stuff like that. So this will pack through no problem. But the bigger thing is that I would... Antitrust groups aren't going to care about that. <laughs> but the bigger story I would say is it's not about Sony buying them and getting the monopoly. It's more of AT&T needs the money to pay down their debt. And this $1.175 billion cash, I guess, will help them just a bit. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even necessarily mean that um, AT&T is getting out of the anime game because they still have some valuable... Uh, brands attached to them, such as uh, such as Toonami, and you know, of course, their Crunchyroll had a partnership with Sentai. Um, who who knows what kind of partnerships AT and T will still be open to moving forward? But they recognize the value of the Crunchyroll brand. Uh, so obviously, with the debts they've uh, they've accrued from all of their uh, monstrous mergers and uh, consolidations that have been going on, uh, yeah, I can. Definitely see why they would uh, want to cash in on the value that that uh, that that brand and user base has generated. That's an interesting point, though. You 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 brought up something really interesting: the idea that AT and T may not be out of the anime game. They've give they've given up a they've decided to sell a big part of their their pieces, but that doesn't mean they can't make their own in the future. That's very true. Um, I mean, we'll see we'll see what happens for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if if they beef up the tsunami element and even be incorporated into HBO Max somehow. I don't know. That obviously doesn't apply to us because we don't get any of those services in Canada. This also doesn't preclude them working with Sony in the future. Like they may even still work with with Crunchyroll moving forward, even though they don't own them. But obviously, it's just they don't have to manage that brand, which of course comes with huge obligations too, which you could argue that AT&T wasn't really um, throwing their weight behind to begin with. Yeah, that's a fair statement. <laughs> yeah. I do know they still had one co-pro between, I guess, Adult Swim and Crunchyroll that was supposed to be a Crunchyroll original, so that's still going to happen. So as you said, that can happen in the future. And Technically, all all of those Adult Swim originals, and there's there, I, I think there's currently... Six have been announced, and there's more slated for the future. I think there's a, at least ten lined up. The current arrangement is that all those are going to be streamed on Crunchyroll. Whether or not that's going to play out for all of them, I guess is not so certain. But uh, th- those projects are definitely going to complicate things, and there will be many complications for years to come. Obviously, we're all assuming that Crunchyroll and Funimation are going to be merged together into one service. Um, but I think realistically, even if Sony does gain control of Crunchyroll, we're, we're looking for at least a year where those services are separate, um, even when, when the ownership begins. And consolidation is going to be messy. It's going to take them a long time to figure that out. Not to mention that uh, Sony has been trying to get Anaplex and Funimation under one roof and merge together, and they're basically not playing ball with that. Uh, they haven't gotten it to happen because they don't want to. They don't want to work together <laughs> that closely. Well. They're quite well, different. They're different. See the ball rolling. Like it's like a bunch of development teams all, you know, at each other's necks sometimes. Yeah. Um, but you know, of course, obviously there's you're gonna you have more redundancy going on between Funimation and Crunchyroll. So well, and, yeah. and the worst part of this, of course, is that a bunch of people are gonna lose their jobs. Uh then Yeah, that, I know. And reading oh, some yeah. tweets, reading some uh A N related tweets from uh AN personalities and Justin Savekas, they're worried. They have friends in those companies, and they were worried about them. Yeah. I do, so <laughs> yeah. I'm concerned about no, that. I could, I could see it, but yeah, this, it takes time for these things to get together because 
they're still merging all their operations under, I guess, the Funimation Group or whatever they're calling it now for the Australia, uh, New Zealand wing of Madman. Then you have Manga UK, you have Wakameen and all these others. But now you have Crunchyroll to add to the mix. But I think Crunchyroll, the big thing for them is this gives them a bigger footprint outside of the English speaking zone, because that was the thing they were going to try and work on was moving into Latin America with and South America with Mexico and Brazil, which Crunchyroll already has its hand in. They've also done dubs in other languages that uh, Funimation hasn't done, like German, Spanish, and it just goes on and on. So I'm not very optimistic about that, to be honest, because Funimation has made like some half measures to expand into Brazil and Mexico lately, but they have uh, been very disappointing so far. They are not getting that level of outreach that they had promised. Uh, in, in prior months or in years for that matter. Um, I don't understand how a company backed by Sony can have so much difficulty, uh, having a proper international footprint, but Funimation finds a way. And, Sometimes. you know, if Funimation does like kind of fully absorb Crunchyroll, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Crunchyroll's like, international presence isn't really adapted well to the way Funimation does business. Again, that's impossible. Yeah, it's, uh, at this point, I'm just really pessimistic about the way Funimation handles anything outside of English English speaking territory. And that's a general yeah. sentiment I've heard from Latin yeah. America, from fans in yeah. Latin America, that they have no hope in Funimation and stuff like that. And they said, "You better just keep what Crunchyroll's got going and roll with it." But who knows yeah. what'll happen, right? Also. Uh, like Jose Argumento, who you know works at CNN, has been on this show before. He's mentioned on Twitter that, from his understanding, a deal like this is not going to include any, um, any, any, any uh, tech or any existing platforms. It is um, branding and IP and user base. Mm. So, uh, mm. so this means that. Um, Funimation is just going to absorb basically the IP and and subscriber base and not use anything that, that Crunchyroll has built up. That seems to be what, what the, the indic, that's what he's indicating. So that's, that's where I'm placing my expectations. Interesting. Well, as they say, I guess time will tell, but we're uh, at least a year out before we see, I guess, the first beginnings of whatever happens. So it's a long road yeah. ahead. Yeah. It's, it's worth noting that I think if we're looking at Canada and the US, there, there will definitely be a number of benefits. For one thing, this will, this might actually increase, assuming that, you know, Crunchyroll is folded into Funimation like we expect, this will, this would actually increase the, uh, the back catalog that non-subscribers can access. Because oh. as of right now, Crunchyroll, <laughs> Canada is the only country in the world where Crunchyroll does not let Canadians access the back catalog unless they are a subscriber. Uh, Funimation does not let all of their titles um, be accessible to non-subscribers, but they let some episodes at least. Uh, they give access to some episodes and some content. So if you're in the U.S. or other countries, you're going to be seeing less access to things than you get with Crunchyroll. In Canada, we're going to get more. So <laughs> I guess that's that's one optimistic way um, I could spin this. Um, but then, I mean, there's also the question of, you know, in those countries where Sony's already kind of cornered the market, uh, and with Crunchyroll just kind of being an outlier service, are they just going to absorb everything? And if they do, are those regions going to get Crunchyroll? Or are they going to get, you know, are we going to see Anime Lab still around? Are we going to see other services like that? Hey, in Canada, are we still going to have Wakanim for 
um, for French speakers or like all three of the services, Funimation, Crunchyroll, and Wakanim all going to be merged into one? I mean, we'll find out. Uh, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. Maybe, may, and who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll include offline viewing. See, that, that's another thing I wanted to bring up. Funimation <laughs> has offline viewing yes. as, a, as a base feature yes. for subscribers. Every subscription service in existence virtually or that, that has offline viewing options has a base service except Crunchyroll, which makes you pay for a premium tier uh, specifically for the ability to download content. Oh. And that also leads to another thing that's kind of been discussed a little bit and something we've alluded to on this show in the past, especially when uh, Carl and I endlessly talk about this, is that mm-hmm. people are talking about how this is going to lead to less competition uh, with these services merged. Uh, but we, from a consumer's perspective, you could almost argue that there hasn't really been competition going on. All the competition is going on in the licensing end. No competition is going on at the consumer end, at the subscriber end, for the people who are actually watching the content. We've just watched these services become garbage over the last two years. I mean, Fun- Funimation's PS4 app is awful. Uh, Crunchyroll's Roku app, uh, they, they finally fixed it uh, with the recent update, but it was basically unusable for almost an entire month after the most recent update. It's The navigation's not really great on any of them. Uh, again, no improvement in performance at all. These are the things that the service, if the services were truly in competition with each other or cared about that, cared about actually competing with each other properly, we, I mean, we'd be seeing improvements. They'd be fighting for an audience, but all they do is just fight over content and exclusivity of content. And that just drives everything in the wrong direction. Yeah, they're just fighting over a small pond of the same people and it's just going nowhere. We all hate a monopoly, but this could drive things like at least drive the drive the bidding wars in the background down a little bit it could even open doors for you know other services like high dive maybe even other services that haven't even launched yet will have opportunities with uh, licensing costs coming but who else would compete really it's just probably netflix and amazon because well sentai is barely a competitor at this point but I mean, that's because they've been priced out of the market. But if yeah. you don't have Crunchyroll and Funimation bidding all the time, then it could be easier to get it. Uh, Deals could be had, I suppose. They're going to be able to get the B titles and the C titles, but the A titles, we know where they're going. So yeah. yeah. And the other thing is a lot of them are now going and getting a seat on the production committee even more for the past year or so. And we've seen that with Funimation and Crunchyroll. Yeah. Again, it's the competition going in a more questionable direction when these services should be competing based on functionality, not on uh, what exclusives they can get. That that just ruins the whole thing. Hmm. Um, and also keep in mind, like, there's a, when you go online and you see people uh, in comment sections talking about Funimation acquiring Crunchyroll, you keep you, you keep seeing this thing about um, censorship coming up constantly, which. I think anyone who follows this closely knows is ridiculous because the idea that Funimation of all companies would censor like nudity or anything like that from, uh, from anime is absurd. Uh, if anything, they have been very good about trying to maintain and push that element of many shows, uh, despite what a lot of people are saying. But the other thing is who you, who you kidding? Sometimes, yeah. It's not as if you, it's not as if you're like you're pulling the wool over anybody anymore. So you're insulting their intelligence. Yeah, but the the funny thing is that when you press these people on what they're talking about with with censorship, 
and they start giving you examples, they're not even talking about that. They're talking about things that they consider quote unquote political lines, like that reference to Gamergate they put in, in the dub for prison school a few years ago, or, or some translator did, or that some, that a questionable line they did in Kaguya Sama season two. I don't even, I don't even remember what that was, but they're, they're claiming that this kind of thing is censorship, which is like, Another weird kind of double speak that they're that they're trying to suck people into. It's all right wing conspiracy bullshit. Basically. Yeah, there's some of that, and I was thinking as well, Jesse. The other one I hear consistently is interspecies reviewers, and then the other thing is even though it's a separate entity within Sony, is the video game business, and they yeah. talk about censorship from that end from Sony on top and we've seen that in certain games but it's few and far between and they don't do that on the Funimation side but exactly i mean that that's the nugget of truth behind it is that when uh sony uh interactive entertainment's headquarters moved to the states that actually did result in the censorship of some sort of anime-based games uh in uh, in japan where you didn't see the same censorship happening on uh on like the switch or pc or other platforms that has been conflated with you know this controversy over certain line translations in Funimation which is conflated with the whole Vic Mignogna thing and it's all kind of regurgitated into all these people who don't actually know anything about these companies or care about anime just finding an excuse to harass people online and that's how they they suck people in with this insinuation of of censorship i don't know man it's it's fucked up <laughs> But uh, yeah, there's a lot of that, and there's a lot of what we talked about, about uh, the reliability of their apps for Crunchyroll and Funimation, and the thing, going back to what you quickly saw in that, what I chuckle about is, remember last month when the PS5 and the Xbox uh, Series X came out, they made a big thing of saying both Funimation's app and Crunchyroll's app would be there day one. And you just scratch your head, and I said, I wonder how functional it'll be. If there is more consolidation going on with companies and with anime streamers in Canada and the U.S., this also makes it more important for, you know, our homegrown streamers like, uh, like Crave or, or CPC Gem or those companies to start getting into anime because there's, again, there's, it's more important to fill that hole, especially since there's a lot of distributors from Japan who, you know, aren't necessarily going to play ball with, with the new Crunchyroll Funimation merger. Uh, if anything, this could just drive, like, the companies that are more likely to, to have supported Daisuke in the past or to put stuff on Hulu or US only services like that. Um, it's just gonna, it's just gonna push them to keep doing that more, I think. And, mm. uh, so we, you know, it, it's more important to have that, uh, have someone who can fill that void in regions that aren't the US. Something to think about. But when I think of it too, if they're looking at content in that as well, another thing that could you could think about, and it was way back in the Bionics days and stuff like that, because I remember the little Canadian flag, even though it was Japanese anime because it was done at Ocean, they said, Oh, it's kind of Canadian content. So you could have that factor in too if they could get some dubbing back to Canada. But that uh, probably won't happen, of course, mm, given the way that's, yeah. trending. that's a pipe dream. <laughs> You're lucky to have gotten the Vancouver voices in that first episode of Yashihime. Oh boy. <laughs> which is not a, which is a LA dub, as I'm sure many people are already aware, which is highly disappointing. But anyway, uh, let's, let's move on from that, uh, because there's gonna be plenty of time to discuss that in the future. Move our sights back to the previous year, uh, where 
Uh, it's certainly been an interesting year for media, and I think our habits have changed in a few ways. But uh, I'm I, I'm sure all of you didn't have too much trouble thinking of uh, of three things you want to highlight that you enjoyed this year. And we'll just uh, we'll just go around the table, each person. Uh, Mike, why don't you go first? So you want me to go with all three, or all three? It's a to- if if we have one person give one item at a time, it's a total mess. We've tried that before. Uh, please don't make me edit that. <laughs> <laughs> most of the most of, most of twenty twenty for me was uh, discovering things that may have already been there for a bit, but then maybe updated in a certain way. And in many ways, they kind of came back to the heart of the matter for twenty twenty, which is the pandemic in many ways too. So my three items uh, as, as they came up were um, Terrace House. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, Terrace House. And, and I'll, we can, I'll go into detail on all three af- afterwards. There was a whole season of Terrace House that started this, this, uh, this year, or, right? Actually, it uh, climaxed in the more, more, in the most horrible way. And we'll get into, we can get yeah. into that in a yes. couple seconds. Of course. So, the second item was, me dis- was me discovering the Yakuza video game series, and we'll, we'll, as I said, we'll go there later. The mm-hmm. third, the third was more of an event, and that was anime lockdown. <laughs> ah, yes. And you'll and you'll and hear me out when you when we talk about all three. Um, when it comes to Terrace House, it was like the thing was I, I didn't get a chance to see the most recent season, Tokyo 2019, 2020, I think it was called, and obviously it got cut off because, as many of you know. It got cut off at the outset of the pandemic, and then it got canceled after the apparent suicide, or after the suicide of Hannah Kimura, who got cyberbullied for some of the things she did on that show, or some of the event, uh, events that happened on on the show. More importantly, the way the producers had pushed That's things. Probably the key thing, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, because you know, some the producers really did go out of their way to make her look like the bad guy, and it worked badly worked. So in many respects, and as I said, the pandemic didn't help it because in many respects, they kind of aggravated a lot of it. So we, so there are talks of cyberbullying and mental illness. And, and the thing was, for me, I also ended up watching beginning to end the season before that, Opening New Doors, which was set in Nagano. And I kept saying on our show that a lot of the tone that would eventually take down terrace house in the next season you start to kind of see that tone develop itself in the latter stages of the season before when they had a very polarizing housemate come on and i'm not gonna spoil it any more than just that it's just that this housemate got a really bad rap as well and everybody piled onto onto this person including the commentators who really didn't help probably didn't help matters in in the in terms of Kimura herself, too. So I, I started to kind of see that from the outset. And after all that, after Kimura's death, I think it was Fuji TV that airs it in, in Japan. They had the show also on their own domestic ser- streaming services. They completely pulled the show. Netflix kept theirs on, kept their episodes of the pre, the current season on for up until recently. I found out at the end of August, they took out the episodes that had Hannah Kimura. And that was more than half the season. So what's left is only the first 19 episodes of the most recent season of Terrace House, Terrace House Tokyo. So, and that was next on my queue. But knowing that it's been cut off, there's really no point in watching it anymore. And I fully understand why. The other thing about the Terrace House story was Kimura's death happened at around the same time as Zach Birchie's death. 
they happen three days mm. apart. Mm. And mm. so coming back to the whole mental illness parts of it, because that, that sadly that's seemed to be things that came up when we talk about Zach, that's, that's what it sort of made me reflect on. So that's why I, I stick with, that's why the Terrace House thing stuck out with me so much when that happened back in May. Okay. Yakuza. Yakuza made me reflect on the return of adding of the Japanese-ness of video games for me. It was the first time like I could really, I really started to think about a video game really being set in Japan. But there's, I know there's others. I get it. It's just that this one has, has had a lot of legs and I only played the first two games in like Zero and Kiwami, which is the remake of one. Uh, and obviously that's been the highlight th- for the t- series this year was the, um, the seventh installment of the yeah. series. Did, did anyone, uh, has anyone played the seventh one yet? I haven't. No, I haven't either. No, I haven't. I, haven't. I know it took a big turn, and they wanted to do something different with that. They talk about the RPG elements. I know. Yeah, it, it follows the the Dragon Quest structure, basically, from my understanding. And it's mm. it's been and uh, reading forms on it, it's been a big hit with uh, its diehard fans. But as I said, it comes back to the whole Japanese ness of it, and then it made me reflect also on Sony themselves. Since this is one of the, since this was up until recently one of the bigger titles on PlayStation because it was exclusive, and we've had this conversation about Sony lever- wanting to leverage their, you know, their their anime side a little bit more, and obviously we just touched on it with their with their acquisition this week. But that's kind of funny because if anything, Sony's identity has changed so much uh, in terms of like how they how they are with video games. Like back in the the PlayStation One and PS Two days, like they were defined by their weird Japanese games. They kind of embraced the Japanese ness of of things that normally would be more localized. Mm-hmm. And over, especially while, like as I talked about earlier, with the controversy with the so called censorship going on with some games, it involves some censorship. But I think I think the bigger issue is that it's just general Americanization of the way they approach the business of gaming. And the way they present themselves. And I, I think a lot of people, a more rational way, don't like that. Obviously, it uh, mutates into something toxic for uh, a lot of people, or people exploit that for toxic reasons. Uh, to me, it was more like Sony coming back to it, because they know that's a strength. That could, they could use that as a strength. But, I mean, also this franchise has been around so long, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's just like just in the last few years that it's kind of become big in the West. And, like, arguably... Like probably Sega's second largest franchise after Sonic the Hedgehog oh in the last few years as well. And, you know, actually, now that you kind of bring attention to that, maybe part of that is because it's filling that void of um, the lack of, of just sort of Japanese-ness in, in modern video games. That and, that and Persona, which is also still a, a PlayStation exclusive. But when mm-hmm. we say that, actually, Jesse, to quickly point out, some of it because it was with Sega for the longest time, but once Sega acquired uh, Atlas and stuff like that, and the Atlas USA people came on board and they took over Yakuza, they just went full on and just gained new fans and they gave it mm. that shine and polish it just didn't have before. That probably and helped, yeah. And, and but so and really, they really pushed it and they brought people in, their fans and stuff like that. And it was like this word of mouth and they started to grow again and stuff like that. And they had a singular vision to unite all those games because they were all coming one after the other. It wasn't like, is the next game actually going to come out? 
well, in many respects, they embraced it, Atlas, in in the in in redoing the localizations. Mm-hmm. Okay, the third one is Anime Lockdown itself, and it, well, Anime Lockdown's success back in May as well kind of set the tone. It didn't. It wasn't the first one. I get it. It wasn't the first. You know, it wasn't the first online convention or online fan convention. It, the buzz, the positive buzz it generated, proved the feasibility of the concept of an online fan convention. And JP, JP, when we talked with him, the guy who is behind Anime Lockdown, uh-huh. he just he has an all shucks attitude to it, and he 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 just he he's still blown away by the by what that did for a lot of people. I think it was just. It was the first, in many respects, it was the first um, together moment I think fandom had in North America when that when that when lockdown happened. So, and, and as I said, it set the tone. It start it set a set an interesting blueprint that well, all the name all the brand name conventions have now followed, and they've done their own versions, whether it be the expos, the Norths, the um, the fun, you know Funimation and Anaplex having their their little things and and Crunchyroll Expo. But to me, it just, it really started to prove itself feasible in terms of anime lockdown, with anime lockdown. And now, sadly, or maybe maybe not so sadly, uh, personally, I'm at the point of suffering various multiple versions of post-convention syndrome. So I, there are so many I couldn't keep, I can't keep up. Uh, and that's why I, uh, James, uh, James and Kevin are actually pretty good at keeping up with them compared to me. I have to say one of my most cherished memories of this year was being able to enjoy anime burger time from the comfort of my own home while yeah. eating. Yeah, that, is yeah. I, that yeah. was so great. <laughs> I think that was the great thing about that and some other conventions. They brought some presenters that you wouldn't normally see at every convention in North America, Europe, or Australia, or wherever. And they were able to come into your own home. And it was great for people to experience that for the first time, whether it was anime burger time, whether it was Mike Tool's dubs that time forgot, and so many others. In many respects, too, when, like, what was it? The same, actually, the uh, around the same time in May or a couple weeks later, Anime Hell happened as well. They did, uh, Dave Merrill did a virtual mm-hmm. version of Anime Hell about Yeah, on, on Facebook. And it... Mm-hmm. Had an infamous uh, technical error in the min- in the middle that set it back by nearly twenty minutes. That's I remember. And you had to watch that whole. No one knows. It's part of the show. It's part of the show. Yeah, and well, the thing was there was there was that moment of togetherness because um, every uh, everybody who I knew about in terms of fandom and sometimes in, in anime journalism, they were out there, and coincidentally, that was also the around the same time as Zach's death. So, you know, you saw a few ANN personalities actually come in to watch the stream as well. I remember seeing that because I remember seeing, I remember seeing Lindsay and uh, Bamboo show up for that. Uh-huh. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I saw them make themselves known in the chat and all I could do was think about how much they were hurting that day. So as I said, lockdown, lockdown, that started the, that kind of started to draw, you know, Tighten, tighten the uh, fan community in a good way. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Uh, are there any other online convention apart from the anime hell event that had, happened on Facebook? Were there any other online um, cons that you guys thought were particularly successful? Hmm. Hmm. 
I wouldn't say successful, but the one that caught my attention of the industry ones, I was really impressed uh, with Anime Limited's uh, anime Cloud. What was it? It was Cloud Matsuri. Now, oh, the first... Cl- Cloud Matsuri, I think of the of the industry ones. Uh, that was definitely the best. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, yeah. the first one was region locked. We couldn't get that in Canada, but the second yep. one a few weeks ago, they learned their lesson. They said outside of Asia, everyone can watch it. And they had some great presenters. They also had a wonderful documentary that's up on the Anime Limited uh, YouTube channel on Cyber City Uedo. And it mm-hmm. tells the story from the UK perspective. And it's an incredible journey on that one. Mm-hmm. For me, it was the Anime Expo one. It was funny though. Like, I'll ask you to go. We should, uh, you should go elaborate afterwards. It's just, I just remembered Expo, Anaplex, and Funimation all happened in the same weekend, more or less. So, yeah, go figure. Yeah, and some of them shared content. I believe too, right? So, what was about what was about uh, Expo for you, Kevin? I got to see some of my favorite singers perform. That was the highlight of my weekend. That concert at the end. I saw the like the last couple acts. That was fun to watch. It was a uh, Kotoko and Elisa were the one-two punch for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and then I, and then well, what did it for me was seeing uh, Cool Angel's thesis be performed yet again. But those are my three. Great. And also Adult Swim Festival was online this year. And that's not, not an anime convention, of course, but they, they had some pretty great content, which is all just, they posted it all on YouTube, which I thought was, uh, that was great to see. All right. Well, James, why don't, uh, why don't you go next? Okay. Well, I guess I'll probably do mostly, uh, anime for my, uh, picks and stuff like that. I guess in no particular order, uh, the ones I saw was, uh, the Great Pretender, which was on Netflix, and I watched that uh, with some people for a streaming party, and it was a fun one, both sub and dub, and it's kind of weird for that one, too, but I'll get into it later. The other one was uh, Arte, which was streamed by Funimation in the spring, and that's a, about a Renaissance uh, woman who's becoming an artist. And then the other one, actually, I think it's hard to pick, but between two movies, the third Fate's Day Night Heaven's Feel movie Spring Song, and then the third Made in the Abyss uh, movie, which was Dawn of the Deep Soul. So, But I guess we'll start off with the first one I said, Great Pretenders. So that was a Netflix uh, exclusive, and it was really interesting. So they put it up into uh, different arcs, and the different arcs were uh, the Los Angeles Connection, which was set in Los Angeles. They had Singapore for the next arc. Snow of London was set in the UK, and then The Wizards of the Far East, the last arc, which was between uh, China and Japan. But it was about this group of conmen and stuff like that that go around the world and their journey and stuff like that through these four arcs. And it's a very international cast. You have the Japanese uh, conman who thinks he's all that, and then he gets swindled by this Frenchman, and they go on this journey to... LA and he becomes a part of his team whether he wants to or not and they all have their own story through these four I mean I have to mention that I've been watching it on James's recommendation so I just finished the Singapore arc a couple days ago Mm -hmm. and I've taken a break uh, because I watched Ip Man and I mentioned kind of Ocean's Eleven's vibe and stuff it has that vibe It that, uh, it has that smarmy vibe to it in a good way and I, I, I'm a, I was a fan of the Ocean's Eleven movies, so it, it's a smart, it's a smart 
it's a smart show in that sense. Yeah, I've really enjoyed what I've seen so far of A Great Pretender. I've, uh, I'm not through it yet. I've heard, um, a little more criticism leveled at the second half of the series compared to the first. Uh, James, did you have any, any thoughts on that? Let's see. I, I don't want to say anything because it kind of ties them together. And I know it has to do with the uh, Wizards of the Far East and it kind of deals with the main character and how there's a deeper connection between him and the Frenchman. So, uh, Laurent, but um, I don't want to say anything because it could p- kind of be spoilery, but All right, I right, kind right. of went along with the ride. I was more like, okay, this is Bond. This is Ocean's Eleven. I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm not going to go anywhere deeper. So I just was along for the ride and it was fun. And the animation was by Studio Wit. It was beautiful. It was really weird because someone told me it's kind of like, this renaissance painting like feel and then when i started watching it again like or while i was watching it i kind of did get that vibe this watercolor vibe or something like that it takes a really unique approach with backgrounds mm-hmm. I, I, like, I like it a lot cool. yeah yeah it has a nice it had a nice feel to it in that sense but as we mentioned you know if you like oceans 11 if you like now you see me like those type, caper type movies but i know worth watch it's worth a consideration anyway oh i do want to watch it to be honest the other yeah. thing is you can either watch it to uh, sub or dub so it's interesting about the dub is the nyav um dub by uh, michael center nicholas they went all out on casting they did some different interesting choices like when they're in japan they're speaking in japanese didn't dub it and then when they go to certain places, it's like you have the English, you have actors when they're in the Chinese settings speaking in Chinese and stuff like that. So they did the casting. It it feels very international, whether it's in Japanese or in English, because in Japanese, too, the same thing was happening. And you don't get that that often. And I think they did a good job. It wasn't like English or anything like that. And the other feeling I got just to cap off on that is that we talk about Netflix and anime and stuff like that. And people are saying, well, they're taking away the Japanese-ness and all this stuff. And they made deals with some of the different bigger studios and some of the bigger studios said, well, we're going for the Netflix audience, all this stuff. And I can kind of see that here, but I still think it's a great show overall for any viewer and stuff like that. They just want to sit down and have a good time and stuff like that. And all the arcs are nice and digestible The four arcs. Oh, to me, it was getting back to the whole, like, yeah, it's, it, it, there's a thought that comes to the Netflix article from a couple weeks ago, but, but maybe on a more humorous note, and we've, we've talked about the yeah, Netflix article in mass. So maybe put that aside for now on, uh, just as a more lighter note, great pretenders ending theme song is the actual song that the cover that was famously done by Freddie Mercury. You mean that song that Netflix keeps telling you to skip? <laughs> or you have the option to anyway. You know what's crazy? I said all those things and I forgot to mention the one thing that's in the title too. And that right. was funny too, seeing that ending, because if you watch the ending, they it basically is inspired by that Freddie Mercury music video, except with cats. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially, they essentially recreate much of the, uh, the that music video with the cats. And uh, as a more, as, a, as I said, as a more lighter note, it used a song that had been out there for years as its closing song, you know, much like Fly Me to the Moon. I don't think it'll, I don't think, I don't foresee Great Pre- the actual song, The Great Pretender, getting to the same level of popular, 
of newfound popularity because of this anime, like what Fly Me, what Eva did for Fly Me to the Moon. Because I think we're, we're, we're it's it's an, it's another time, it's another era to me. But it, it would be funny if we start to if we see a little bit of more popularity now for or a little bit more attention to the song itself now amongst fandom. I doubt it will happen. Yeah, I mean, the money and resources that went into producing that ending theme just gives me hope that maybe ending themes aren't going to die as a result of a a, a bigger shift towards streaming. Like, well, yeah. Well, the thing is, the, the Annie song is still a thing. It's still a big business for for Japan too, for Japanese music. It's got to sell those physical physical CD singles. Yeah, the theme songs have become more a bigger part of the ecosystem there. But I guess I can see where it could come from on that one because I remember Be the Beginning didn't really have an opening at all. It was just kind of here's the title card and away we go. So I guess time will tell as streaming is the future as we know. The second one, Arte uh, was in the spring season. It was based off a of manga. And basically this one is about, it takes place during the Renaissance era in Florence, uh, Italy. And it's about uh, this 16-year-old girl, Arte, and she basically is a noble in there and dreams of actually becoming an artist, which is kind of hard being a noble. And so she actually tries to make her dream come true and basically renounces because her father has passed on her and her mother said, okay, you got to go and get married. And she's like, no, I'm going to become an artist and actually walks away and goes into Florence and everyone rejects her except for one uh, man named uh, Leo who takes her on as an apprentice and like her journey to be accepted as an artist in Renaissance Italy, which is obviously, as you know, pretty much impossible given how uh, women were treated at the time and stuff like that. But her journey as she gets accepted through them and then as she gets grows her profile as an artist, because she does go to uh, Venice as well as another setting later on in the series and stuff like that, where one of the nobles brings her on to tutor uh, his niece and she also does um, some portraits for them. And as she goes and does these later on, which isn't in the anime, it's in the manga, she comes back and becomes renowned for her style of art and stuff like that. But it's the new battles of, oh, you're just the woman painter that does this certain style of art and stuff like that, which is interesting. So, hmm. But uh, the series is fine. It's um, 12 episodes and really it's a slice of life story and it from a historical aspect it was interesting as they definitely did their work and stuff like that on how the people were interacting with each other the costumes to, so it was all there i never heard of this actually this is the first time i've heard of this title yes yeah, so one sec uh, the original manga if i can find it quickly was done by kei uh, okubo and so that's been, and that one actually is in English. Uh, Mongamo has, I think, uh, the first uh, couple of volumes that. So, and Arte is spelled A-R-T-E. So, mm-hmm. but it's a fun slice of life. It's a fun historical one. I guess probably the other reason that it, uh, I liked it as well as I enjoyed uh, some historical pieces like Emma. I also enjoyed Pride uh, Tales that. So, so if you enjoyed those, you're definitely going to enjoy uh, Arte, or if you just enjoy history in general, of course. Those sound up my alley. Having enjoyed both of those titles, hmm. yeah, I, uh, I've heard, I heard, I've heard good things about Arte. I've not checked that show out. So, 
I'll, I'll type it down for sure. Anyway, so finally, uh, the last one, just to make it quick and simple, and because they're the big ones, I'm sure most people, pro- well, I would say most people would have tried to see, and but unfortunately, because of theater shutting down, one of them you could see virtually, one of them you couldn't. And that was maybe the abyss, uh, dawn of the deep soul, which was available, uh, digitally. Thank uh, goodness for Sentai that they were able to, I guess, work something out with the licensor on that one. So I watched that in a watch party with some people because it was $19 American to get the right to view it. Yeah. And perfect that, party movie. Yeah. It's not, it's not a party movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely, definitely <laughs> when we got together with the people that were doing that viewing party, we said, Everyone had watched the first series and they knew what they were getting into for this movie because remember this movie had the higher rating and there definitely was a lot of adult content and with, uh, it was more, uh, the one character, uh, Perushka, the, uh, younger, she's like a very younger character and how, um, the main antagonist, uh, Rondrud, uh, who quote unquote is her father treats her and stuff like that. And so, mm-hmm. it, it definitely is squeamish. Like I, I would agree completely with that. And, but it's like on the whole, it's still an enjoyable experiencing watching it with the main characters, uh, Reg, uh, Rico, and then uh, Nanachi and, and them trying to transverse down the abyss, down this hole that this journey we started in the TV series and that the other key thing to this movie is creating the white whistles and how these white whistles are created. And it, I can't even say how it's created because that's a very big spoiler, but it continues on with the series where you originally see the art style and stuff like that in this first episode. It's like, oh, it's like Ghibli. It's nice. It's like these nice, happy people and stuff like that. And then the real shit hits you. It's like, <laughs> oh, this is, this is some serious things going on to all these people. They're living in a real lived-in world here. It's like nothing is easy. Nothing is the sun shining down. As you go deeper into the abyss, it gets a little darker, right? It's like you got to work a little harder. Yeah, th- this movie was uh, relentlessly bleak. Uh, I thought it was very good. Actually, I can I can see why they chose to do it as a movie for, for a number of reasons. There's about as much story that could have been used to fill an entire season of an anime in this but the the story i think functions better as a film although i will say like i don't say this often i think it actually could have been a little longer um because it, it feels like it's at times that it was just kind of jumping from plot point to plot point and just trying to make sure they got through that story in that two hour uh window but i really think it would have been better if they could just draw things out a little bit make things hit a little harder make you have to process what's going on a little more. I think that could have deepened the impact of the movie uh, greatly. Did you read the uh, manga by any chance from Seven Seas? Because they had gotten to that point already and stuff yeah. like that. I, I have not read the manga. I'm uh, They mostly adapted everything, just to let you know. So there was only so much. Yeah, I'm... Uh, I, I'm not a fan of the uh, child sexualization that is rampant in uh, the manga. And I have to say more of that, apparently the mangaka pushed for more of that to be, uh, <laughs> to be present in the, in, in this recent film. Uh, there's a joke in the movie about Reg getting an erection that you could really tell the movie staff didn't want to do, but it got in there. 
Mm. It's there for all to see. Oh, boy. And that's one of those <laughs> things where I see it and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know he's a robot. I know he's kind of supposed to be like Astro Boy and all this stuff that he's like really a person, stuff like that, even though he's a robot. But really, do we have to go there and stuff like that? Like, I think it's definitely forced when you see those moments. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, and it takes you out of the movie. It t- like, there are things they do that, yes, they're graphic, but they're impactful. But when you have something like that, it takes you out of the moment and it doesn't really need to happen. And it makes you think, do I really want to continue on with this series or this movie? And I know what you mean. And I, I haven't done the manga as much as the anime, just to let you know. So that's concerning if that's more rampant in the manga. Yeah, the, the the impression I get is that the manga has this much ickier feeling to it. I know with the first season of the anime, they did a fairly good job of just kind of kind of brushing off certain things as a joke or kind of kind of toning things down or just focusing thing on things that are supposed to be more har- harrowing or uh sort sort of enhance or uh, deepen the impact of what's going on. The staff had a really good sense of that. The 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 movie does seem to, to veer a little more towards the uh, the more chaotic nature of, of of the comic. You know, there's that, but it is still very good, very recommended. Made in Abyss sucks you in, and you can't stop, even if uh, you find some of the content in it to be vile. Uh, that's what makes it. That's what makes it what it is. Yeah, no, they got the full experience, and as you said, it's like, I think you could only get that done in film for the graphic nature that they had to show for that arc and stuff like that. I don't know how you would do that in a TV show. And just to quickly mention, the quick other one I mentioned was just the third Fate Stay Night movie, Spring Song. And I think there's been enough written about uh, how great it was to just finish off that Heaven's Feel uh, arc that just like uh, made in the abyss that third movie i don't think you could have done that arc on a tv screen or anything like that you had to do that as a film trilogy just because of how graphic especially the second movie was the third movie uh, i was lucky enough i went and saw it in a theater and <laughs> it was a great <laughs> movie <laughs> fool Hang on. Table, great fights, and a great finish to uh, probably the most. Uh, that one was just a trip to say compared to all the other arts. Very uh, graphic. The, the test came back negative, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, if if it wasn't a, if it wasn't the fact that it would have been a three hour round trip, I would have went to curse you, Doctor Bonnie Henry, for doing the responsible thing and closing all theaters in British Columbia right before that movie came out. I am hoping that Anaplex will have a second screening for this movie sometime Damn. in the spring mm-hmm. uh, because with uh, with Anaplex there is not going to be a digital option, at least not if you speak English. Um, you will be able to see this movie. Subtitled in French in the Canadian version of Wakanim at some point. So if you speak French and subscribe to that service, good for you. Yeah, it's either see it in a theater or pay uh, $100 for the Blu-ray. I think wise you're going to be seeing the Blu-ray before seeing it in theaters again, but there's always hope. A lot of people have voiced their frustration saying, could you bring it back again? So we'll see uh, if the overlords from Japan will allow uh, Anaplex USA to do that. All right, Kevin, uh, we'll move on to you now. All right, so uh, my selections will all be manga because I rarely watch anime nowadays. Well, la-dee-da. Yeah, I generally watch anime 
with other people nowadays, and that's a more difficult thing to do in our、mm. current climate. So, as a person who regularly follows weekly Shonen Jump,、uh, it's really interesting to see how the magazine is trying to adapt. Especially now, you have you had so many long-running titles and popular titles end over the past twelve to eighteen months. So you had titles like Demon Slayer and The Promised Neverland and Nisei Koi and a couple others just ending, which meant that a lot of titles had to come out to replace them. So these three selections are. Some of those newer titles, actually, that either started last year and ended this year, or they did like start this year, give or take. So my first title would be a little comedy title called A Gravity Boys, because Gintama finally ended in Shonen Jump. There has been a flurry of、uh, comedy manga that have debuted in an attempt to take its place, and. For me, I think A Gravity Boys does the whole absurdist comedy routine the best, and so this series is about four young men who、uh, are sent to space to look for a new habitable planet to live in, but then they find themselves、uh, in a planet with that's pretty primitive, and and they also realize that they can't go back to Earth because. Uh, Earth is swallowed up by a black hole. If I'm not mistaken,、oh. these four men, or I guess I should say boys, have to now live out their new lives, and it's really interesting to see、uh, just the antics that they get into, and the delusions that they get into, and how they play off one another. And you have like. You have all these like silly setups that happen. Like you have one character named Chris who's very effeminate, the girly boy, and because the guys haven't encountered women in quite a while, they start to look at Chris a little funny. And this is a joke that gets old, to be honest, but it's pretty funny the first time around. I had to admit, and and then you start having all these fantastical elements that. Come into play, so you have this godlike figure that kind of appears very early on, who messes with the main characters, get, giving them like chances to explore other planets and to help them figure out how to navigate their new landscape, all on his, just all to his own amusement. And you really, how do I put this? Like, it's really just a lot of fun and. It's also very, very dumb as well. It's it's really the kind of dumb humor that I tend to enjoy. It's a lot of fun.、Uh, I don't think it's doing too well in the magazine right now.、Uh, it seems like the the current popular comedy title in Japan is called a、uh, Me and Roboco, which is about a、uh, a young kid and his Doraemon esque robot maid, but. I'm hoping that it pulls through.、Uh, it's been going on for almost a year now, so there's hope. There's hope that it'll continue for a little while yet. It seems like Shonen Jump titles are being given a longer leash nowadays too, so we'll see. For my second title,、uh, this one is a little more familiar with、uh, 
manga reading fandom nowadays. Uh, it's a little title called Chainsaw Man. I don't know if any of you have read it or not, though. I will admit no. Heard no. of it, but haven't read. I haven't read it yet. Oh, really? Interesting. Uh, so Chainsaw Man is a very hyper-violent series and also features a dumb male protagonist who, truth be told, he just wants to live a happy, peaceful life and to have a girlfriend. So... The thing is, is that Denji is, he's like, he's always poor in health and he's poor and he's hungry and, uh, he gets himself caught up in a situation where he finds himself about to die, but then he ends up forming a contract with a devil called, uh, Pochita. And by them fusing together, he can become the chainsaw man. So he can just <laughs> route chainsaws from different parts of his body and you can imagine how bloody these chapters can get as a result it builds a fascinating world in the sense that uh eventually denji becomes uh employed by this devil hunter association and you encounter these cast of characters who really i don't know how to put this it's very like they're sort of one note but then you learn to uh appreciate the different characteristics of each character. But at the same time, uh, you quickly learn that you shouldn't get too attached to these characters because uh, Tatsuki Fujimoto uh, loves to kill off his characters. <laughs> Some, like, to be, truth be told, there were a couple characters who I grew attached to and then they just die like five chapters later and I think like, wow, that didn't take very long. And uh, I also think that he builds a very powerful villain in the form of, oh, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, but you you meet certain characters who seem like they're saviors, but you just have this feeling that they're not all what they seem, and they play that up very well later on. And uh, you also have the situation where uh, you have, like, different characters come and go, but then certain characters do stick around, and I think... For me, there's a character named Power who is, uh, she's a, she's a very popular character. And it's funny because she's like a very crass demon. And her and Denji have this very, uh, playful relationship. But it, and you think, oh, maybe they'll, they're both kind of quasi demons. Maybe they'll fall for each other, but they don't. And you know what? It's nice to see that kind of platonic relationship that, benefits both pe- both people i have to say also with the art you it really it's crazy like lots of violence there are several like how do i put this there are several iconic scenes in chainsaw man so one of them is where uh you see denji like in this kind of tornado-esque scene riding a shark devil while fighting this enemy what? and i just think yeah it's it's nuts. <laughs> My third choice is uh, one that unceremoniously ended this year. And yes, I am talking about Act Age. Oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy. Yes. Yep. So uh, on... Guilty. <laughs> uh, on the anime roundtable, I, I talked about how I kind of know how Mike felt when, when he found out about what happened with uh, Nobuhiro Watsuki, because uh, Mike, for listeners of Zan and uh, Mike, Mike loves Roni Kenshin. And 
problem for me is I found out about that af- long after the fact. So yes. the shock, because, because I was just coming back in, coming back into podcasting at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like the fallout had long happened and it was a fallout-ish, but that's another story altogether. Sorry. So with ActAge, I would say prior to its cancellation, it was my favorite series in Shonen Jump at that point. And ActAge was a bit of an atypical Shonen Jump series where it features a female protagonist, which is very rare in Shonen Jump. You, the series is mostly about acting, which also doesn't tend to be a topic that comes up often in Weekly Shonen Jump. And not only that, you have a female character who is not sexualized at all, has a good personality, has a interesting personality, and you kind of see her as a person who comes from almost nothing because she is she has no parents to support herself, support her, and she has two younger siblings that she needs to support. And you kind of see her uh, because she likes acting and wanted to pursue that as a potential career. She goes out and goes to auditions and she gets spotted by this one director who thinks that she has the potential to be something great. And you see this you see this girl uh, who, whose name is Kay. Uh, she's slowly kind of through numerous auditions and circumstances and trying to figure out how to navigate this world. You see her progressing through her career. And now she hits different roadblocks, but she usually will find a way to act her way out of the situation. Uh-huh. So you do have those little bits of uh, tension and, one in those moments of thinking, oh, like, how is she going to get out of this? Another great thing with ActAge is uh, the cast. And ActAge reminds me of Hikaru no Go in the sense that you have a bunch of people that are in the same profession or doing the same sport or that play the same game who obviously want to usurp one another and want to be the best. So that's how it kind of relates to Shonen Jump. But there is still that camaraderie there that, you know, that sometimes they will help each other out or sometimes they will give each other bits of advice or sometimes if everyone's in a, someone's in a tight spot, they'll try and help them out. And you don't always, I guess you, you do see that in a lot of different titles in Shonen Jump, but I guess it feels a little different in Nactage for me. And it just really hit home. Like, I just think that it was just so well executed. It just kind of felt different enough that it really stood out for me and i think it took a lot of people by surprise because this was one of the uh it was one of those shonen jump series that they released three chapters but then they chose not to continue it but it persisted in japan it did not get canceled it slowly built its popularity and then you're talking about the english uh weekly shonen jump release on the app yes the online service and it, they only did three at first, but then it came back and was included in the regular rotation. Cause at that time, not every title from weekly Shonen jump was, um, being simulpubbed. Yes. Uh, service. Now we are actually 2020 marked the first time that every title in weekly Shonen jump is being simulpublished in that online service now though. So, you know, we're, well, that, cause once Ayakashi triangle debuted was when, Every single title was being 
simul published, yes. Um, worth noting about Act Age is that I think it's one of the only weekly Shonen Jump titles in quite a while, uh, or was, rather, uh, where that was illustrated by a woman. Yeah. Um, it, it's been, as has, uh, the, there's been a lot of controversy lately how the editorial staff of Weekly Shonen Jump is a complete boys club, uh, which has enabled some very negative behavior, which also is, uh, why Act Age no longer exists. The news was fairly widespread that the, the writer Tatsuya Matsuki, uh, was arrested for sexually assaulting, uh, middle school girls on his bicycle and pleaded guilty to it as well. And the, the response was he was fired. The series was canceled. Not only was the series was canceled and also all published, uh, everything that had been published related to Act Age previously has been wiped off the face of the earth. You cannot legally obtain Act Age in any form anymore, whether in print or digitally. It's just, it's yeah. gone forever. It's- um, Yep. It's yeah, limited yeah. to the secondhand market, and if your retailer happened to still have copies, then they're still there. Uh, so for Canada, Volume 1 did come out, but yes. Indigo never did stock Volume 2, whereas in the USA, uh, yes, it got pulled from most places. Well, actually, not most places. Right Stuff pulled it, and then Viz does not acknowledge it anymore. Uh, it is still in, like, Barnes & Noble. Uh, volume two did make it out to Barnes and Noble, so I'm still I, trying to figure out how to procure that book. I, I, I would imagine that, like, any, any copies that are still on store shelves is probably by mistake. I think Viz, <laughs> I, I believe their intention is to fully recall everything. Um, but if you, uh, yeah, if you, if you, if you can hunt it down, I mean, grab it, it's gonna be worth a lot of money. Um, but as I was talking, as, as I was saying, the artist, uh, uh, the artist of the series, Shiro uh, Usazaki, uh, one of the v- very few female artists in a weekly Shonen Jump title. Uh, I'm kind of amazed at how few, uh, female mangaka are, um, featured in the magazine. I, I can't think of another recent one, uh, who, who, who has shown up because like, I- again, there's all this controversy about, uh, the boys club of, 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 Weekly Shonen Jump editorial who en- enables certain uh, question people to keep coming back over and over again or, uh, you know, other people like Watsky, the artist of Rurouni Kenshin, continuing to get high profile exposure uh, despite, you know, the whole child pornography thing that was going on with him. There's certainly like a, a, a negative culture of enabling there of, of boys club, but it, it still amazes me that like in most magazines, at least some of the artists are are women. And it just so rarely happens with Weekly Shonen Jump. And like you go to like Jump, even Weekly Shonen Jump's sister magazine, Jump Square, it has some, a better record of like female mangaka. I think even some female mm-hmm. editorial staff. Young Jump is a completely different world, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it's the type of magazine that has gravier photos on the cover. Um, <laughs> it has, it had, they have, they have had female editors and, and, and female mangaka but weekly shonen jump specifically seems to have this problem and you keep getting this controversy after controversy coming up um and it's unfortunate that this happened to uh to to the artist fortunately she there's a new one shot coming out soon and she's drawing it oh she is doing a new one shot that's good yeah act age was very special and i don't know we'll see how long it'll be before i find that special title in uh weekly shonen jump again and because I do love A Gravity Boys, but it is a very silly work. So 
I'm looking forward to see what comes out because there is a lot of good new stuff coming out in Weekly Shonen Jump lately, like Sakamoto Days, uh, and over in Jump Plus, you have Spy Family and you have Kaiju Number Eight. So yeah, future's looking bright. So I will quickly give uh, my three items. So the first one I want to bring up is uh, an HBO Max animated original series, quote unquote. Uh, not really though, because it was a series that had been part of another animation block that was planned for TBS back in 2017, but was scrapped because that block was supposed to be headlined by a show by C.K. Lewis, and we know what happened with that guy. Um, (laughs) close enough, uh, the new animated series by J.G. Quintel, who is the creator of Regular Show. So it's an HBO Max, um, exclusive in the U.S. In Canada, it's on Netflix. Not only is it on Netflix, it's branded as a Netflix original, which I find hilarious that AT&T and Warner would let that happen. Why am I not surprised? Their big competitor brand their show as a Netflix original outside of the U.S. Crazy, really. I wonder, are there any other outside markets that Netflix is doing that show in, I wonder? Because that'd be funny. There are other markets outside of Canada. Um, it's, it's on, um, TV in some, in some other markets. It's not consistent okay. everywhere, but in quite a few markets, it's labeled as a Netflix original. So close enough at first appears to be more down to earth and realistic than regular show. It's about a young family. Uh, the parents are in their thirties. They have a, uh, a daughter, uh, in kindergarten. Uh, and they live together in a duplex with a divorced couple who's still living together. Um, (laughs) so this sounds more down to earth than regular show. It is actually even more, uh, bizarre and surreal, uh, than that, uh, than that series was it, the way the episodes escalate into complete insanity is just beyond anything I can describe, uh, succinctly. Um, it, it also, it also, for all that insanity, it actually really captures living in Los Angeles really well. I, I have to say, like, I think probably like one third of all media ever produced probably takes place in Los Angeles, but it's very rare that you have something that really captures what living in Los Angeles actually is like. And this show, uh, does a good job of that with just, just the struggles the characters have, um, and just, just the day to day life of, uh, of living in that city. Uh, it paints a really great picture of that. And it's, if you're, for anyone who's in their early thirties, even if you don't have kids, it is, uh, horrifically relatable <laughs> at times. <laughs> um, and also this, this show is amazingly laid back in its depiction of drug use as well. Uh, not, and I don't just mean in like depicting what it's like to be high on certain substances, but it, it just, just the actual use of drugs is just, is very like open and, and accepted in a way that I, f- I found really surprising. And of course it does get extremely trippy at times. Uh, that's really where the, uh, the appeal lies. Um, also one of the characters is voiced by Jason Manzukis and he actually is, is Jason Manzukis in, in every way. The husband <laughs> of the divorced couple they live with in the duplex. The show is only, it's, well, it's 16, 15 minute episodes, but they're compiled into eight half hour episodes. And despite having been shelved for three years and just kind of shuffled around with no clear path on where it was going to go with eventually landing on HBO Max, it has been renewed and will be getting a new season 
probably not next year. I, I would expect this probably in like 2022. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Close enough, I think is the funniest thing that I watched this year. It's really easy to, uh, to get into and digest. I, I've actually been meaning to watch it again and I, I don't rewatch things, uh, very often, especially in a short period of time, but I, I can't wait to dive into this one again because there's so much I've already forgotten and I want to experience <laughs> again. It's, I, I guess you guys have not seen this, this, this no, show. I mean, I, no. I just pulled it up, pulled up an image, a couple of images and mm-hmm. saw like a, you know, a bit of the preview on my phone. <laughs> uh, well, it's not for kids. It, doesn't look uh, like it, it is not for kids. It is. <laughs> it's definitely not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a very, like, it's, it's really down to earth and kind of heartwarming in some ways, despite how, uh, completely bonkers it gets. Uh, it's, it's like, it's not a mean spirited show at all. Okay. Uh, but it is, it is absolutely a show for adults. Um, and, and I mean, it's, it's very much a sitcom too, but you know, it, it differs from, from a lot of what you'll find on like adult swim and stuff in, in terms of tone. Actually, it's quite, it's quite comparable to Tuca and Birdie. Uh, if you guys have seen that show. I haven't, but, uh, I gotta see this. Yeah. I, 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 that was one of my recommendations from last year as well. Duke and Birdie, mercifully, uh, if, if you have not followed the news and only listened to my show for some reason, uh, Duke and Birdie is getting a second season on Adult Swim in 2021, uh, cause Netflix canceled it. Uh, so yeah, you have that to look forward to. You have another season of Close Enough to look forward to as well. I recommend both of those shows. Uh, they, they they have a lot of the same vibe and uh yeah how often does the cast interact with the homeless uh there's at least one episode that uh that has that focuses on homeless a bit i can't remember exactly mm. well for instance the first episode features british british street urchins which is not a realistic <laughs> depiction of the homeless um oh, god but it, it's like a perfect intersection of again uh la life and regular show style surrealism taken to a whole new level. <laughs> okay. Then it's, it must be a pretty accurate description of LA then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, it captures that, that LA vibe really well. Uh, it's surprising. It's one of the, it's one of the things that makes this show, gives the show a really unique voice. Okay. Hmm. My second selection is an anime. So this wasn't necessarily my favorite anime of the year, but I think it's the one most worth highlighting. I have lamented on this show quite a bit how we have seemed to have gone past the glory days of short anime, uh, anime that's five minutes or less, uh, that seemed to make up a huge part of um, what you'd find streaming back around like 2015 or 2016. But we had one really good one this year uh, called Extra Olympia Kaiklos. Extra Olympia Kaiklos is based off of a manga by Mari Yamazaki, uh, who is best known as the artist of Thermai Rome, but this uh, this one focuses instead uh, on the Greeks. There's a very similar premise. Uh, it focuses on uh, a guy named Demetrius. Uh, he is a vase painter and sculptor and total loser uh, who lives in the, in the village of Tortonia. And uh, he hangs out with a dolphin who is better than him at everything. And, he, <laughs> and despite having this perfectly chiseled uh, Grecian physique, which of course Mari Yamazaki is well known for appreciating uh, that type of character design. 
You bet. Yep. <laughs> uh, despite having this perfectly chiseled physique, he hates sports and physical activity of any kind. And yet he is constantly being pressured by the mayor of his town to come up with a sporting event uh, or join the Olympics in order to raise the profile of Tortonia. And this keeps escalating throughout the series to the point where they actually eventually start their own event that is a rival event to the Olympics themselves. This is because despite his hesitancy to entertain the mayor with these with, with these innovations, he keeps getting transported forward in time again, just like in Therme Rome, where he encounters this old man and his family uh, in post-war Japan, and they show him these trivial little uh, little innovation, modern innovations from the time, and he brings them back and, get, and gets around... And, and finds novel ways to develop sports or things related to sports uh, that in ways that are completely unexpected by his peers in the past. And they keep raising the expectations and to the point where like the stakes keep going up and he has to keep going back to the future, coming back over and over again. Um, uh, and, and eventually as he goes forward in time as well, the, uh, the modern segments keep moving forward to the, to the point that they get to the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, which he unwittingly participates in. And of course, all sporting events in this show are nude, of course, as was, uh, as is accurate yeah, yeah. To, to history. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of anime that ran this year, uh, was victims to delays or postponements due to COVID-19. Extra Olympia Kyclose might be the most tragic case of that because not only uh, was it postponed for several months? It started in uh, the the spring season, uh, but then after Ooh. about seven episodes, it got pushed back and it was not completed until the fall season. And there were a total of 24 episodes. Uh, so not only was the show itself postponed, um, but the entire reason that this show was likely made was postponed entirely because it is very obvious that this show was made to tie in to the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. In fact, the actually ran as an interstitial on a primetime show in Japan. It wasn't a late night anime. It was actually during normal people viewing hours. Oh. Yeah. No, I remember they said it was to tie into the Tokyo Olympic Games. It was kind of tying into the old original uh, Tokyo Games and stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah. And- I mean it's the, the the nostalgia for the for the for the 64 Tokyo Olympics is a huge part of um the sensation around the upcoming Olympic Games in Japan, of course. Mm-hmm. And the mangaka, like, she was the perfect one to do it, like, based on her past works. And it was a great series of shorts, what I watched. And if you still want to watch it, it's still on Crunchyroll, so. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, the whole thing is on Crunchyroll. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. When Therme Rome was running, people always compared it to an adult swim show. Because it kind of was in structure in a lot of ways, and in style, it was a really cheap flash animation kind of show that reminded people of the cheap flash animation that ran on Adult Swim back in like 2003, 2004, like Aqua Teen Hunger Force and those shows. But Extra Olympia Kyclos is also very much like an Adult Swim show, maybe even more so, uh, but it has a much more unique animation style. It's actually a kind of a mixed media project most of all the greek characters you see in the past are in claymation they all look like greek statues wow Um, when he he travels forward in time it takes on this uh unique kind of i don't know how to describe it it's they kind of looks like it kind of looks like cutout characters being moved around but it's you know just just a really fancy 
digital animation, really. Um, and th- like the modern character, the quote unquote modern characters are animated in a completely different style, but it all blends together really seamlessly. Uh, this series was done by a studio who I don't think has ever done any anime before called Gosei Studios. It was directed by Ryo Fuji, who in my, I, I didn't have time to do a lot of research on this, but as far as I can tell, he has never worked on any anime before, let alone directed one. So this is definitely a unique kind of project. Um, I think the thing I like about this show, or the thing that I always liked about every episode the most were the karaoke segments um, <laughs> that they end uh, being sung by Onerous the Bard. Um, he'll sing about like some weird, just some weird little uh, piece of, uh, of of Greek historical interest with like totally accurate karaoke style graphics running on the bottom. Uh, the best one was when he sings about Hermas, which are those like flat, those statues that are just like a head, a flat panel, and male genitalia uh, positioned near the bottom. Mm. And it's just like, he'll just do a whole little song about something like that as the as the ending themes. They're all great. This show is absolutely fantastic, and yeah, I recommend going back and, and watching the whole thing. I you did know? it. But obviously, obviously, Amazaki-san has made news in, in many good ways. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you like your style, obviously, it's a no-brainer to, to think about it. Yeah, this one I think I will check out at some point because I love Thermai Romai. Yeah, yeah, no, I checked it out based on Thermai Romai, and I was not uh, disappointed. I also knew, like, based on the art styles, definitely going to be different there, and I had heard that it was going to be in a more traditional Japanese time slot because of the tie into the Tokyo twenty yeah twenty games. So I'm like, this will be interesting to check out because you don't get many of these. Uh, they don't come around that often, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very rare. Um, also, uh, just side note, uh, Netflix is doing a new Thermai Rome yes. anime yeah. as well. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that when, yeah. when we were looking forward to it. And looking at the image, it looks like it's going to be more traditional, the animation, stuff like that. But the thing that's of interest is... Uh, Mary Yamazaki, I believe the creator, she's going to do some new stories for it. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't read the manga. I understand it goes in a quite a different direction in the last half. Correct. They kind yeah. of, I think the manga is still going on at that point, but it does go in a very different direction. There is, I guess it's not too spoilery to say there is a love story with Lucius and then this female character, and it goes a certain way till the end. Uh, a very happy, happily ever after sort of uh, story, but that's all I can say. I don't want to spoil too much. Yeah. If you do it's, want to go into it, it's out by Yen Press if you do want to get uh, those volumes, the complete series. Knowing Mari Yamazaki's own interests, uh, it is not surprising. <laughs> the, the fact that the series goes in that direction is not surprising at all. Yeah, uh, no, not surprising. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the final piece of media I want to highlight, I think, is one of the most important pieces of media that has come out in 2020. It's still ongoing. Uh, it is a webcomic. Now, web webcomics are interesting because I've always kind of been of the opinion that while many talented people work on webcomics and a lot of them are very good, it, to me, it's always kind of represented the failure of the Western comic industry that they're, they've become so vital for people. It just shows that, you know, we can't accommodate as many artists in our system as they can in, like, Japan. But webcomics let you do things that you can't do in official press or, quote-unquote, legal press. 
And this uh, particular webcomic, I think, embraced that in a way I haven't seen in a long time. This webcomic is called Mr. Boop. So <laughs> Mr. Boop is written by Alec Robbins. He's a TV writer. He works he works on like the Eric Andre show uh, and, and some other stuff related to abs- Absolutely Productions. Basically what it is, it is a self-insert webcomic that he writes about himself being married to Betty Boop. And wow. <laughs> this series is maybe the greatest work of copyright, blatant copyright infringement uh, <laughs> I have ever seen. So he not only is married to Betty Boop, he also, he works with Peter Griffin and Sonic the Hedgehog at Subway. <laughs> there's a storyline that go that goes on later on where Sonic the Hedgehog goes to jail because he tries to kill them because they refuse to have a threesome with him. Oh. There's one segment later on where Mickey Mouse goes on about copyright infringement while holding his erect penis in his hand and masturbating. Like, in spite of all this insanity, most of the comics are just, like, end-on anti-jokes. Like, you know, the main character saying something like, wow, that's what I was hoping he wouldn't say that. Like, you know, some lame sitcom stinger. When I say something is fourth-wall-breaking... That doesn't sound very special anymore. Uh, there's no fourth wall in this comic. He is constantly finding innovative new ways to break the fourth wall with um, with the way the comic works. Like a, a huge factor of this is the fact that he is writing about his own life and talking about the idea that he is actually totally married to Betty Boop in real life and she loves having sex with him and that what he's writing in this comic is an accurate depiction of his own life. And the way that it just go- keeps going back to that and and poking into that divide between what is happening in his real life and what he's depicting in the comic re- reaches several levels of brilliance. I don't want to spoil this too much. It's it's You can go to mrboop.net and, uh, and read... Uh, all the existing chapters of this so far it will not take you very long. Apparently, you can also purchase um, the what? the three books, uh, three of the four books that uh, that these uh, comics have been collected in as well. I, I don't I don't know if he should be making money off of this, but that's I'm glad. What I was going to say someone's going to come after him, aren't that's they? A, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Probably not. They don't care, as we know with Sonic fan games, but I think Disney maybe. <laughs> Wow. I, okay, I'm sure Eric Andre will protect him. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm having difficulty describing this thing. You just have to go check it out. It's it's just taking this this idea of self-insert fan fiction to terrifying and brilliant levels. If you read it, you will see it is one of the greatest things produced in this quarantine era that we live in right now. Wow. And that's wow. that. Mr. Boop. Go read Mr. Boop right now. It, oh, it's boy. the best thing. <laughs> I think I will. Wow. Just read, just looking at some of these images too. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's everything I have to say about that. Obviously, you guys have uh, not read Mr. Boop. So before we wrap up, uh, anyone have any, uh, what am I, well, I was going to ask if you guys have any big holiday plans. What am I saying? Of course you don't. We're <laughs> no one's leaving the house. Yeah, you better uh, not. Dinner for one. Well, yes. Just yeah. to say, we are both, well, all three of us are in lockdown zones uh, in Ontario. So unfortunately, we're not supposed to go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. I'll be doing it. I'm not sure about you, Jesse, if you're in color coded land as well, or if you're in a zone which says you can't go anywhere. We can't go anywhere. It's all, everything, it's bad. Everything's bad. 
Yeah. Just some, just a couple of holiday Zoom meetups for me. Yeah, I'm doing that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, virtual holidays and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, virtual stuff. Trying our best. I mean, I mean, I, I'm in touch with my, with my, uh, with my family regardless. And I, I, I'm in touch with friends. So yeah, this is, you know, been a rough one. And like, but I mean, that goes without saying. Just there's a degree of restlessness. And yeah, it's, while it's nice, like as we're taping this this week, va- uh, vaccines have been approved, but you know, this is still going to be a while. Yep, we're going to be here for a little while longer. Let's face it. And some of us were, who were furloughed or otherwise laid off, you know, there's there's still some waiting. There's a bit more of a waiting game there. But you know, all you can really just do right now is just stay hunkered down and stay safe. There's there isn't really too much else to add. Well, if you want some positivity or something like that, I can tell you the story. Uh... A few days ago, uh, I was walking uh, my new puppy, and we were going in just under an underpass for a road above. Someone had put uh, this bag, and it was actually filled with uh, Christmas bulbs and stuff like that. And they had a note and said, if you want to, like, write a message or something like that, you can put it on the bulb and then hang it on any of the different trees along the path. And, like, it's grown to all these different bulbs on all the different trees, uh, None of the wildlife is touching. Some of them have different messages of positivity and stuff like that. And it looks very festive and holiday-like and kind of gives it a different feel and gives something, you know what I mean, some people some hope or something mm-hmm. different instead of looking at the same maybe four walls every day, right? So, Well, yes. But yeah. even when you see that around, and so even in our small localized areas when we do have to try and go out. Well, I, I mean, to be positive, I... I've spent much of this whole pandemic catching up on watching and reading different things. And, and thanks, Jesse, because you recommended Wave Listen to Me. It's a good show. I can't recall too many shows that had laugh out loud moments for me. Like I, I found myself laughing quite a bit. And that is a a fairly mean spirited, uh, yeah, that's, that's adult oriented animated show. But again, but it has some awesome. really really funny moments, and you're wondering if the main character Minari is going to kill somebody. And concerning who the creator is, you know. Good old Samara. Yeah. yeah and if you he's see the right story, it kind of has the same feel to some of his short stories he's done for Slice of Life, even though most people remember played in the Immortal. That was having a, lot of, having a lot of fun. So I'm just catching up on the on my viewing and, read, and discovering shows that maybe are much older, as I mentioned in my three. So I, there's the blessing in all of this. As I said, you just make do. You just make do with what it is. And just try and make yourself better or just do things that are just plain good for the soul, which is a yep. phrase to use. So. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, and, yeah, thanks, guys, for coming on. Uh, mm-hmm. Could each of you please just take a minute to let people know where uh, the folks listening can find you on social media or online in general? Uh, Mike, can you go first? Okay, so as I said, we're the we are the trio three, three of four who do a host anime roundtable. Obviously, you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we are on Instagram and Twitter, although the Instagram is hardly ever used. But we're there on both at anime roundtable. That's just one word. 
AnimeRoundtable.com is the show's archive, so you can check up all the past episodes. Now, on a personal level, uh, I'm on Twitter as well, at OkinaBlue. Like Kevin mentioned, I am a Kenshin fan, so that's that's where you can find me. And I, I admit I don't post too much, but that's where you can contact me or uh, otherwise hail me and hope, uh, hope for a couple more follows in that sense. Oh, yeah, I guess the email is just from old school, AnimeRoundtable at gmail.com. That's how you uh, can contact us, anything Anime Roundtable. Okay. And James? Actually, I'm the oddball of the group. I don't have any social media. I'm like the anti-social media. So if you want to contact me, you're going to have to find me yourself or send me a letter. <laughs> yeah, he, he talks a lot about You snail wouldn't mail. give out your address, though, which means we, no one will contact you. I guess I'll just have to get a P.O. box. Or, or send it to any one of us. We'll, we'll forward the threats and love letters to him. But it's kind of funny because it's like I talk to people, I do use like Discord and all these other things, but it's just social media hasn't done anything for me. So it's like I just haven't gotten into it, even though I know it's like people are saying, well, you don't have social media. It's like, are you a hermit? <laughs> no, you've, you've, made, you've made the right choice. Trust me. And yeah. In many ways, you're not missing anything. You're yeah. this is this is good, James, that you've managed to avoid it for so long, dude. Yeah, uh, I go by BusterBlader126 on Twitter, and that's about as much as I want to share on social media. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for tuning into Zon in Canada. You can reach me on Twitter at jbetteridge or email zonincanada at gmail.com. The theme song is by Ultraclystron and can be found on his album Packet Flood, and you can find that at ultraclystron.com. Uh, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcast app of choice is. I also have a coffee account, ko-fi.com slash Zonan Canada. I do lose money uh, making this show, so if uh, you do like what I do, uh, you know, please consider giving a contribution. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, so to everyone locked away in your homes uh, or whatever you're doing right now, I guess, uh, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, whatever you do, take care. See you again.